Here's how we're going to roll. We're going to go through Acts 15 this morning, and I'm going to start off with my resume, which is really not important, but it, it may give you a little a little insight into why the subject of Acts 15, which is church unity, is so important to me. Deb and I have served in, in churches ever since we got married 43 years ago, right? I got that right, right? Okay, so we'll make 44. For, for 43 years ago, we chose a church right after we got married and moved to Murfreesboro. And we served together in probably every volunteer position, every committee you can think of over the years. I was uh, a Sunday school teacher for fifth grade. I still have the scars right here. I made it almost one year. I taught junior high for several years. Like Tyler, there was a period there that I was both youth leader and college leader. Uh, he does a much, much better job than I could ever hope for doing. It was a much smaller group, but man, it was, it was ugly as well. I was ordained as an elder before I was 40, probably for the wrong reasons. Served on denominational boards, uh, you know, checked all the boxes, right? Did, you know, did, did the things that good Christians are supposed to do. And after about 25 years, right, give or take, uh, Deb and I went on a little spiritual journey because we kind of decided that that wasn't quite working for us. And after a year out of the wilderness, we wound up at, uh, here at Calvary, and that's been about 18 years. And when we showed up here, we found something or somewhere around 30 of our oldest and dearest friends had snuck over here and didn't tell us where they were. For example, Lyle and Susan Lynch. Lyle was leading a, a connect group at that time, and so we started attending that connect group. And he was so excited that we attended that he graciously turned the leadership of that group over to me after about six months. Fifteen years later, I got him back, and I turned it back over to him. That was one of the best days I've ever had at Calvary. Uh, in December of 2011, I came on staff part-time as Midtown Ministry Director. That was our uh, inner city ministry or inner city initiative and probably some of the best work that, that I've ever been involved in with some of the best people and, and we still have a little bit of that going today, thank God. Uh, served on the leadership team for a while, did a, did a stint there. And then in January of 2012, I was ordained as a minister here at Calvary. In July of 2012, I came on staff as part-time associate pastor. That kind of morphed into part-time executive pastor. I've resigned six times. Apparently, I'm not very good at that. Uh, but the next time, the next thing I'm going to take, I promise you, uh, currently, I'm serving on two committees of the Concord Baptist Association, uh, and I say this not to impress anybody, but just to let you know that I've been around church world my entire adult life, and I've seen the good and the bad and the ugly about churches. I've smelled the brimstone in the meetings. I've seen the anger pop up in committee meetings. I've, I've seen the worst. I've, I've also seen the best. But none of those compare to something that happened to me when I was 12 years old. Our family attended a church in Nashville where we lived, and it reminds me a lot of Calvary. Uh, we had a nice educational wing. We had a nice uh, sanctuary, which is what we used to call a worship center. And uh, the only downside to it is the sanctuary had tile floors and metal chairs. So you could not move during the service, or you would be heard and stared at. I learned that very quickly. 
Well, as the church grew, as our finances got a little bit better, we, we determined that we could afford pews. And we found a deal because a church down the street was upgrading their fiberglass pews to wooden pews. And we all know that wooden pews are more holy than fiberglass, but we took what we could afford. Uh, and as part of that deal, we got six short pews for the choir. Hold on to that. That's the important part of this story. Well, I was a Boy Scout at the time at that church, and our service project was to scrub those pews clean. I had my Playtex gloves on, got the comet out, and we scrubbed for hours. And we made those white fiberglass pews shine like the morning sun. They were beautiful. And you would not believe the excitement that was building up within that congregation for that very first time that we were going to worship in real pews. And so the day came and everybody was in a good mood, one of the biggest crowds we'd ever had. And as we went in, we looked towards the front of the sanctuary and the choir pews, the six short pews, were positioned behind the pastor facing the congregation. Like, well, that's okay. That's fine. Week went by, we came back the second week, we sat down and we looked up front and the choir pews were now facing perpendicular to the congregation so they could face the pastor but not face the congregation. They thought they'd try that out. Okay, that's fine. Over the next several weeks, it became a race between different factions within the choir as to who got there first and determine what direction the pews were going to face. Team A would face it towards the congregation, team B would face it towards the pastor, anyway. Until finally, one faction, and I honestly can't remember which one it was, one faction got smart, got a key to the church, and on Saturday morning, went in, positioned the pews as they wanted them to be, and bolted them to the concrete floor. Two weeks after that, the church split. People that had worshipped together for 10 years, prayed together for 10 years, shared life, raised their children together, stopped speaking to one another. Things were said that you don't say in church, but were said in church. Friendships were broken, feelings were hurt. It took another 10 years for that particular church to recover from that split. Now, I have smelled the brimstone in the meetings. I have heard voices raised throughout my adult lifetime, but that one sticks. That 12-year-old that experience sticks. And I have tried to let it guide me. I haven't always been successful, I know, but I have tried to let that guide me in everything that I have done for the Lord that's required of me within a church. And always remember the day the church split over the choir pews. Now, it's an, it's an interesting story. It's not about doctrine. It's about stuff. We're starting today in Acts 15, and the early church at that time was making decisions based on doctrine, big, big decisions, important decisions, decisions that people felt very, very strongly about. And it begins at the end of, of Acts 14 
where Paul and Barnabas are returning from their missionary journey. They've been to Iconium and Lystria and Burby and other places. And they sailed to Antioch and they reported the church at Antioch of all the things that God had been doing on their journey throughout the land. Think about the times that Will Jackson comes here and shares with us about his work in India and how exciting it is for us to hear that the word is spreading to places we can't even pronounce or never heard of, can't find on a map. But there are now new believers in that part of the world because of what Will and his team has done and by the grace of God. This is what Paul and Barnabas were reporting to the new believers in Antioch, and they rejoiced. Great news. Everybody's on a high. You know, the church is growing. Everything is going really, really well. Now, the doctrine at that time for acceptance into the church, salvation, was grace. If you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried, rose the third day, descended and ascended into heaven, and will return, grace was bestowed on you and salvation was bestowed on you. That's the deal. And that was spreading everywhere it was taught by Paul and Barnabas. Until, beginning with uh, Acts 15.1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. You've been in committee meetings like that. I'm sure many of you, like me, have served in committees all your adult life. And your voices get raised. So that's the no small debate and dissension part. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and it brought great joy to all the brothers. Again, they're going from, from Antioch back to Jerusalem. They're spreading the word about how the good news has captured the world and how believers are growing. And just the work that God was doing. The Holy Spirit was entering into so many people. One of the periods of greatest growth within the, within the church. Now understand this. At, at this time... Salvation by grace was completely unheard of. And, and honestly, that concept is unheard of today among recognized religions. If you look at other religions throughout the world today and in times past, it was pretty much about following the rules or about working real hard or about how much you give or this, this concept about just because God loves me, if I believe, it, it, just mind-blowing, something completely different. But that's what was growing the church. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion, bringing great joy. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, the leadership, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who had belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary 
to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. We have to have rules. It's Thunderdome if we don't have rules. Culturally, my daddy, my granddaddy, my great-granddaddy, we all had to follow these 600-plus rules to be a good Jew. We weren't going to get saved until we followed all these 600-plus rules that none of us could actually keep. But if we had those rules, then the new guys had those rules because what we think needs to happen, because we're legalists, what we think needs to happen is we need to turn all these new believers, all these Gentiles, into junior Jews. They've got to go through our customs. They've got to follow our rules. This whole grace concept, yeah, we like it, but we're the ones that invented it because Jesus was a Jew. You had two very distinct sides. Grace or junior Jews. So here's what the elders and the apostles and the leaders of the church did to resolve this issue. This huge, huge issue. Because I promise you that there were going to be a lot of Gentiles that were going to turn away from the faith because they weren't going to go following the rules of Moses. They weren't going to be circumcised. They were like, this is not what we had been taught. This is not what have attracted us to the faith. This is something you're throwing in after we kind of decide to join up. Verses 6 through 11. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. There's no second-class citizen. There's no, this group is special because they're this group of believers, of believers, of believers, of believers. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We can't do this, but we're going we're gonna to expect them to do this because that's a rule. But we believe, continues Peter, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We, we Gentiles here, no different in our rules for salvation than the first Christians. No different than our rules for salvation than the original Jewish people that converted to Christianity. All in the same pot. So Peter finishes. And then in verse 12, we hear about what Paul and Barnabas say. All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So we have this debate going on in the council. We're hearing this side. 
Peter, Peter's giving the background of how this thing got started with the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas are giving the background about we were just out there in the mission field and this, this is catching fire. People are hearing the good news and it's life-changing and we're not adding all these rules. Finally, in verse 13, we hear about James, the half-brother of Christ. James, author of the book of James. James, who says, faith without works is dead. That James. James, who had been accused of sending the men from Judea into Antioch and the other parts of the world requiring the circumcision, although he had not but some, they've done some tracing on this, but for a while he was accused of, you started this. This James says to the assembly, to the council, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. In other words, guys, Peter told you what God told him to do. As we look at the scriptures, Peter's right. Because what James does, he pulls Isaiah 45, 21 in the argument, which goes like this, verse 16. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, says James, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Mic drop. Leadership's in agreement. They've spoken of it, they've thought about it, they've prayed over it, they've looked to the scriptures for their decision. And here's how it goes from there. James continues. We're not going to make, make these new rules for them, we're not going to make them be circumcised, but, beginning in verse 20, but we should write them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, we're not, we're not abandoning grace. grace. Grace is the backbone of our faith. We're not adding a layer of 600 plus rules that we've had forever that we can't keep we're not going to throw that burden on the backs of these new believers because they are coming to us for the right reason but there are some things that you know it might be good if they stop doing if you look at their culture that Steve has talked about for the past few weeks <coughs> so everybody's happy happy joy joy as far as we know from the scripture Peter's spoken up Got to do this, faith by grace. Paul and Barnabas get up there, faith and salvation by grace, working. 
People are coming to the faith in droves. The Holy Spirit is working through us with these new believers. We're on the right path. James, one of the great leaders of the church, says, okay, we don't, we don't need to add all these rules that didn't work for us. Same argument. But we might mention a few things that we kind of think are important. Which is a list that he had. Now, this could have gone one or two ways. And I've, I've seen it go both ways, as have many of you. There could have been an edict sent out from the council. We're in charge. We've discussed it. This is how it's going to be. That, that would not have gone over well. Because that's not what the people were coming to Christ for. So, the wisdom of the founders of our faith shows through. Beginning with verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Basabas, and Silas, a leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. Now pay close attention to this letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers, to the brothers who are Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality and I love the way it ends if you keep yourself from these you will do well farewell the council could have attacked this with a hammer. But that's not how you treat family. Even in Tennessee, we don't sneak up behind our cousin and hit him with a hammer. Often. Often. They sent a letter that was written with a feather. They sent a letter that says, Love you. We're all in this together. We're all part of the same church. We're all believers in Christ. We're not challenging your salvation. 
But here's some things that you might want to consider. If you do this, you will do well. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered a congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they'd read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So what can we take from this? Big doctrinal issue. I mean, this, this, was, a, this was a deal breaker question. New believers, Gentiles, are we going to force up on you all our rules, all our customs, all our resurrect, uh, regulations that truly were given to us by God, but do all these rules and regulations make a difference as far as salvation? Because we, the Jews, we're playing a new game. Christ has brought us a new message. Christ has brought us a game changer. Christ is not saying that all this is, is, is worthless. But Christ is saying, if you want to be saved, this is all it takes. It's a gift. It's grace. You don't earn it. You don't buy it. You don't check the boxes. You believe. And if you believe, you'll be saved. If you believe in me, says Christ, you'll be saved. The other stuff is just stuff. It's good stuff. But the important stuff is if you believe. It's that one thing. The Jews, the Jewish council, the leaders of the church at that time did not disagree with that. But they added some suggestions based on their experience and the culture of the Gentiles at that time. These are things that you might want to do better because that's just going to show you that it's a, it's a better life as a Christian. So, love you guys. Try this out. When the new believers, when the Gentiles got this letter, they rejoiced because of the encouragement. They didn't feel beaten down. They felt part of the family. Over my lifetime, because of the choir pews, I guess as much as anything, I've tried to choose the feather. I haven't always done it, but I've tried to choose the feather because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And you don't hit your cousin with a hammer because we are all loving the same Lord. 
And, and, and yes, we're going to disagree about stuff. And yes, many of you have driven me crazy over the past several years. And maybe sometimes I wanted to bring the hammer out and I didn't. Maybe once or twice I did, I'm sorry. Try not to do it again. But the, the brilliance of the Council of Jerusalem at this time, not just the brilliance, but the, but the connection with the Holy Spirit that they had it's just phenomenal. There was prayer going on. There was discussion. There was searching the Holy Scriptures. There's everything that we should do. And at the end, they were in unity. They didn't split over the choir pews. They reached an agreement that was guided by the Holy Spirit, knowing that they were guided by the Holy Spirit. They sent message to the new believers that wouldn't scare them off. And the word spread. And here we are today. Now that's the end of the scripture about the council. But we have a bonus round at the end about how believers one-on-one can get along or, or maybe not. Beginning with verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. In other words, let's go back to all those people that tried to kill us. Let's go back to those people that tried to imprison us, the people that stoned us, the people that really didn't like us at all. Let's go back and visit them, see how they're doing. Because that was kind of Paul. And also, let's go back and see how those churches that we left are faring. Let's go back and check on our family that are living in these conditions. And Barnabas says, great, let's do it. I want to go get John Mark and let's go. And that's where a little, <laughs> a little big dissension hit between Paul and Barnabas. Because John Mark, as you recall, is a guy that started with them on their mission trip and at some point during the trip bailed out for whatever reasons we don't know, went home. Paul didn't forget that. Barnabas, on the other hand, was cousins with John Mark. So he had the whole family thing going. If I don't take him, I can't go to Thanksgiving dinner. You know, it's just not going to work out. What's the rest of the family going to say if I don't take John Mark? This is, this is the fun part. Now Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take <clears throat> with him the one who had withdrawn and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Now Christians don't ever do that, right? We don't ever have that sharp disagreement. These guys did. There arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So we had two great missionaries of the church that had done amazing work together, and they split. Again, not on doctrine, 
but on who's going to travel, which is almost as important as church views. And Scripture recalls that this is a sharp disagreement, which is Scripture for they, you know, they got angry. There was yelling involved. So they, they split ways. Paul goes the way that Paul wants to go because that's what Paul does. Barnabas seeks out an alternative, possibly because he saw the worth in Mark, John Mark, possibly because he wanted to grow this young man up in the faith. At any rate, he took John Mark with him on his missionary trip. And if we look forward, if we fast forward in the scriptures, this young man who left Barnabas and Paul wrote the book of Mark. He grew in the faith. He grew in statue. He grew in maturity. And now we have the book of Mark thanks to him and God. Paul and Mark reconciled. If you look in Timothy, Paul asked for Mark. So they're playing happy, happy, joy, joy again. They're playing nice again, which is what Christians that disagree should do after they cool off. So big things, doctrine things, work it out. Work it out in unity. Pray through it. Don't fight about it. Don't bolt down the church views. One-on-one, we're going to disagree. In, in this case, nobody was wrong. Paul was right. Barnabas was right. Both trips worked out to the glory of God. That can happen too. Ultimately, the call is peace, unity, focus. And the focus is on God. In everything that we've learned through chapter 15, it's always about the Holy Spirit and what he wants and how we can implement it and grow the faith. I'm going to change gears a little bit and leave you with a final story because I am a storyteller. <clears throat> and, and as I start through this, you may hear groans from people in the sanctuary because I've told this story a long time to a lot of people. And there are people I can see already, they're flinching just a little bit. Reader's Digest, 1968. And that was a paper magazine, okay? Small, right? And it had a section called Life in These United States, which was a series of jokes written that people read and chuckled at and that sort of thing. This particular story has stuck with me forever but it took forever to understand why it stuck with me. The story about a farmer and his wife in a pickup truck driving down a country road. He's sitting behind the wheel. She's over next to the window. The window rolled down. And they get behind the convertible. And in the convertible is one of those two-headed drivers. Male head, female head, all scrunched together. Arm around them, Right? All snuggled up together. Dude's got one arm on the steering wheel. So they're behind her for a while. 
Ultimately, the wife turns to the farmer and says, do you remember when we used to drive by that? Dwayne, I'm sorry, I moved again. Do you remember when we used to drive like that? And he thought for a minute, and he said, yeah, I do. They drove on a little further, and the wife turned to the farmer, and she said, why, why, don't, we, why don't we drive like that anymore? And he thought for a minute, and he said, well, I ain't moved. Half of you got it. Think through it. I finally figured out that this is about my relationship with God. God is always there. God is the constant. God is always welcoming of me. But those times in my life when I have felt separated from God, it's not because he moved. It's because I moved. God never moves. When, we're, when our relationship is not as it should be, it's because we've wandered, not because he's left us. Let's pray. Beloved Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom of the early church and its leaders and their faith and their strength and their courage and their relationship with you. Lord, we ask that we model that part of the new church just as importantly as we model any other part of the new church. And Lord, let us individually live our lives as we're instructed by the prophet Micah. Love mercy. Seek kindness walk humbly with you. It's the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.